For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Wow. Well, good morning yet again. Would you join me now in prayer, asking for the Lord to bless our time. Father, we thank you so much that you are our Father, that you are good, that you are truly the Holy One, and that you call us your children faithfully every week on this day, the Lord's Day. You summon us into your presence so that we could receive from you the life-giving, nourishing, empowering Word of God. Lord, we ask now that as we've heard it publicly read, that now you administer and apply it to our lives as it's being preached. Father, we have come from many different places, as have encountered many different things, where we have been confronted with all the hardships and brokenness of living in a broken world. And for many, if not all, Lord, we are tired, we feel tattered, we feel torn. And Lord, we pray now that you would bring the healing balm of your word, applied to our hearts, to our spirits, to our minds, so that we would leave this place more firmly rooted in confidence and in hope and in joy, so that we can move forward of being a blessing in this dark and broken world. Father, we ask now that you would bless this message in spite of the one who brings it, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen and amen. You know, many of you in here probably know, if not all of you know, that I have a son by the name of Judah. Judah, my second born. But what many of you may not know is actually I didn't want to name him Judah, at least not initially, right? I actually wanted to give him another name. But unfortunately, that woman over there, my wife, refused to give her consent. And I know that when I tell you the name that I wanted to name him, you're going to be like, why, Sarah? Why? You know, why didn't you give this son of yours this awesome name that Pastor John wanted to name? And you want to know what the name was? Jedediah. What are you laughing for? I wanted to name my son. I think Sarah is hiding right now in shame. But I wanted to name my son Jedediah because, not because it sounds cool, because it does, but because of what it means. You guys know what the name Jedediah means? It means beloved by God or God's beloved. I wanted to name my son Judah Jedediah because of the fact that whenever he heard his name and when other people heard his name, they would recognize him as one who is beloved by God. You know, names have a way of doing that, at least in the days of the Bible, in the days of the ancient world. You see, in the days of the Bible, people were given names to communicate to other people about this person, about the person who bears this name. I and mean, we see this all the time throughout Scripture. For example, Eve, the wife of Adam. You know what the name Eve means? Mother of all who lives. Abraham was given that name by God. And you know what that name means? The father of many nations. We see over and over how name is given to certain people to communicate something about this person, to communicate something about the significance, the uniqueness, the call of the person who bears that name. And this is true, most of all, to the most famous person in the Bible, and that is Jesus himself. We're beginning today our Christmas sermon series or our Advent sermon series entitled The Christmas Names of Jesus. And what that means is during the next four weeks, we're going to take a look at the four names that the prophet Isaiah prophetically names Jesus 
in light of his coming on Christmas Day. Now, some of you are in here like, wait a minute, Jesus had other names? I had no idea that Jesus had other names. Well, you didn't, you're in luck, because by the end of this series, you're going to know these names, okay? You're going to know the significance of these names. Now, the reason why I call them the Christmas names of Jesus is because Isaiah is prophesying these names in the context of Jesus' first coming, the first advent, Christmas, which is why the only times you tend to hear these names of Christ is during Christmas, right? The Christmas names of Christ. And so as we take a look at these names of Jesus in the context of this prophecy of Isaiah, we are going to understand not only about the significance of Jesus himself, but also about the significance of what the message of Christmas is all about and how God wants us to understand this holy time of year. And so we begin by looking at the first name that Isaiah prophetically names Jesus, and that is the Wonderful Counselor, the Wonderful Counselor. So three things I'd like to share with you today. First, why we need the Wonderful Counselor. Number two, the uniqueness of the Wonderful Counselor. And finally, the wisdom of the Wonderful Counselor. Why we need the Wonderful Counselor, the uniqueness of the Wonderful Counselor, and finally, the wisdom of the Wonderful Counselor. Let's jump right in. First, why we need the Wonderful Counselor. You know, one of the things that you hear so often during this time of year is this idea that Jesus coming on Christmas Day is God's greatest gift to us, right? Preachers everywhere, all over the world during Christmas say, Christ is God's greatest gift. And indeed, he is God's greatest gift. And believe it or not, these four names in Isaiah 9 explain why Christ being born on Christmas is God's greatest gift. And so we begin by looking at the first name, Wonderful Counselor, and we begin by asking the question, what is a counselor? What is a counselor? Well, you look up that word in any standard definition dictionary, right? And it will give you this definition. Someone who gives counsel. Okay. Not so helpful there. And so you continue on your track for understanding. And you decide to look up the word counsel. And the first definition you come across is this. A counselor, or excuse me, an advice, opinion, or instruction giving and directing the judgment or conduct of another. Advice, opinion, or instruction given and directing the judgment or conduct of another. Ah, much more helpful. A counselor is someone who gives advice or instruction in order to guide or direct someone who is receiving that counsel. And indeed, if you ever come across that word counsel in the Bible, you get that same idea being conveyed. For example, in Exodus chapter 18, we read the story of Moses leading his people to the promised land. But of course, he is overwhelmed. He is stressed out because the burdens of leadership is upon him, specifically as the judge of Israel, where he has to settle matters of dispute amongst God's people. And it gets so overwhelming that at one point, his father-in-law, a man by the name of Jethro, says these words to him in Exodus 18, starting in verse 17. We read, Moses' father-in-law said to him, the thing that you are doing is not good. You will surely wear out both yourself and these people who are with you. For the task is too heavy for you. You cannot do it alone. Now, listen to me. I will give you counsel and God be with you. So, we see in the Bible that a person who gives counsel or a counselor was a person who helped someone navigate through the complexities of life, or if I could put it this way, it was a person who imparted wisdom so that a person could figure out something that they could not figure out without that wisdom. Now, when you hear that and you combine it with what I just said earlier, that Christmas or Christ coming on Christmas represents God's greatest gift to us, and part of the way that it's shown that he's God's greatest gift to us is so that he could give us wisdom, 
doesn't necessarily make us feel too good, right? It's kind of like the situation where a wife gets for Christmas by her husband a treadmill when she didn't ask for a treadmill, right? Or it's kind of like when the husband gets a bottle of Rogaine, you know, that shampoo that regrows hair, when he didn't ask for it. It kind of feels like a metaphorical slap in the face. Why? Because the idea that God wanted us to give us wisdom, right, as a gift, doesn't that kind of tacitly imply that we're a bunch of idiots, right? That we have no idea what's going on in life, that we're a bunch of fools, because that is what a fool is, by the way. A fool is someone who lacks wisdom. And you know how the Bible describes fools? It's someone who is so pathetic because they can't figure out life, right? That's what a fool is. A fool is a pathetic person because they're incapable of figuring out how to live basic life. You know, we have a word for those kinds of people in our modern day. We call them losers, right? Losers are the people who don't know how to figure out life except for living in mom's basement playing hours of video games with Cheetos encrusted fingers. Now, of course, some of us love Cheetos. No dig against you. Some of us love video games, but who of us in here would ever love the idea of ever being perceived as a fool, as a loser? None of us. And yet, when God says, I want to give humanity a gift. I want to give you a gift. Here, have some wisdom. It almost seems like, uh, what are you saying about us, God? You know, why are you giving us the wonderful counsel? Are you saying we're a bunch of idiots? But listen, that is not how you should understand or therefore interpret why God gives us the wonderful counselor. No, if you understand why Jesus is the wonderful counselor, you won't be insulted by God. You'll be more enamored by God. Why? Well, let me explain. In this Pulitzer Prize-winning book, The Denial of Death, a sociologist by the name of Ernest Becker says this. Listen to what he says. I think taking life seriously means something like this, that whatever man does on this planet has to be done in the lived truth of the terror of creation, of the rumble of panic underneath everything. Otherwise, it is false. What is Dr. Becker saying here? He's basically saying that life is scary, right? That life, in his words, is a terror of creation. Now, of course, you don't have to be a Pulitzer Prize winning sociologist to agree with him, right? All you need to do is go on Facebook and read the latest news cycle on the news feed at every level, whether it's international, national, local, and you're bombarded with news upon news of terrorism, of natural disasters, of atrocious war crimes, of genocide. One day you're reading about, you know, North Korea getting ready to nuke the United States. The next day you hear about a crazy deluge, crazy guy going to Texas, killing a bunch of children in the Texan church. The next day you're reading about some terrorist guy running people over in Tribeca, killing a bunch of people. It just seems that we cannot have a day go by where we're not constantly overshadowed with how dark and broken this world is to where it makes even the good things in life not feel so good. Indeed, theologian Herman Bovink is right on when he describes the world this way. Listen to what he says. We live in a strange world, a world which presents us with tremendous contrast, the high and the low, the great and the small, the sublime and the ridiculous, the beautiful and the ugly, the tragic and the comic, the good and the evil, the truth and the lie. These are all heaped up in unfathomable relationship. The gravity and the vanity of life seizes on us in turn. Now we are prompted to optimism, then to pessimism. Man weeping is constantly giving way to man laughing. The whole world stands in the sigh of humor, which has been well described as a laugh and a tear. 
This is life. It's bitterly sweet, tragically comical, delightfully hopeless, hopeless, magically miserable. Well, if I could simply put it more simply, simply put it more, if I could just simply put it, it's complicated. Life is complicated. Let me ask you guys, do you enjoy your life when it's complicated? (laughs) You know, if you have a friend in a relationship and you say, hey, how's your relationship going? And your friend says, well, it's complicated. Are they saying that they're enjoying the relationship at all at the moment? Probably not. Listen, when life is complicated, life is miserable. When life is complicated, life is miserable. And this is true of even the most trivial things. For example, my daughter Kara is in second grade. You know, one of the things that she really doesn't like to do is her math homework, right? Every time she doesn't like, oh, math. You know, me being the arrogant father that I am, like, oh, Kara, don't worry. Daddy knows math. I did really well in math. You know, I went up to calculus too in college, right? Daddy will help you figure out. And so I proceed to try and explain it to her. But at some point, she's like, you're doing it wrong. It's like, what do you mean I'm doing it wrong? This is how you do it. It's like, give me that pencil, Daddy. I'll show you. And then all of a sudden, she starts doing this common core math where it's all this weird, like, conceptual way of doing math. It gets so complicated. By the end of it, I, I throw the pencil across her. Like, what is this? So complicated. All kidding aside, it is true. Life gets more miserable when it gets more complicated, and that misery magnifies when the thing that's complicated is a more serious matter, right? A complicated math problem is miserable, but it's not as miserable as a complicated relationship, right? Or a complicated marriage. See, this is why Jesus being our wonderful counselor really is an expression of God's great love for us as an expression of him being the greatest gift that God could ever give to us. Not because he's trying to imply that we're a bunch of fools, but because he knows we live in a misery-inducing, complicated world. And so instead of being that neglectful, cruel parent that just says, figure it out on your own, you idiot, he comes alongside of us, and he counsels us. He gives us wisdom. He gives us insight. He gives us answers so that we wouldn't be so overwhelmed, so that we wouldn't feel so uncertain, so that we wouldn't feel so alone and so afraid. Do you guys know what is the only remedy of overcoming that sense of fear and uncertainty when life gets complicated? The Bible says it's wisdom. Wisdom. This is why it says this in Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Listen to what it says. Who is like the wise? Who knows the explanation of things? A person's wisdom brightens their faith and changes its hard appearance. So to summarize... Jesus, as our wonderful counselor, is really God's gift to us because we live in a terrifyingly complicated world where we need, desperately, wisdom. Now, for those of you here investigating Christianity, you're hearing this and you're probably thinking, wait a minute, Pastor John, are you implying that it's only the wisdom found in Christianity that can solve the riddles of life? Are you implying that it's only in Christianity where you can discover the wisdom that will make life better? Isn't that kind of arrogant? What about wisdoms found in other religion? What about philosophical wisdom? Why is it that Christianity offers the wisdom that we should focus on? Why is it that your wisdom, what's so special about your kind of wisdom in the Bible, Pastor John, to where you say that should be what we should focus on? Well, great question. And to answer, let me go to my next point, the uniqueness of 
the wonderful counselor. Now, you probably noticed that in my first point, I focused almost exclusively on the word counselor and completely ignored the word wonderful. And I did that on purpose because I wanted us to understand what Isaiah meant when he referred to Jesus as a counselor, which, as I stated, is someone who gave counsel, who gave wisdom. Jesus has come to give us wisdom. Now, by clarifying that, by clarifying the word counselor, I wonder if that inadvertently caused you to be more confused about wisdom. Why? Because think about it, or excuse me, not about wisdom, about wonderful, right? Because when you think about things that are wonderful, wisdom is not usually one of the things that we label as wonderful, right? We say, oh, that was a wonderful meal, or that was a wonderful performance, but when was the last time you ever said, well, that's wonderful wisdom, right? We don't usually put these two ideas together. We don't say that wisdom and wonder belong together, that these are two things that naturally belong together. And yet, throughout history, all the great thinkers who we would say are the pillars of wisdom in Western society have always stated that wisdom and wonder belong together. Take a listen to the sampling of some of the philosophers that I've quoted here. First, Socrates, the brilliant Greek philosopher, once said, wonder is the beginning of wisdom. Alfred North Whitehead, the brilliant mathematician and American philosopher, once said, philosophy is the product of wonder. The effort after the general characterization of the world around us is the romance of human thought. Alan Watts, the English philosopher, once said, wonder is not a disease. Wonder and its expression in poetry and the arts are among the most important things which seem to distinguish men from the animals and intelligent and sensitive people from morons. See, those who have made their life mission of learning wisdom and teaching wisdom have recognized that wisdom and wonder belong together, that these two things are inseparable. And by calling Jesus the wonderful counselor, Isaiah is saying the exact same thing. He's saying much more, which we'll get to eventually. But at base level, he's saying wisdom and wonder cannot be separated to where when a person is growing in wisdom, they should be, they should always be growing in wonder. Now you're thinking to yourself, how does that make sense? Why is it that when you get wisdom that it should lead to wonder? How are these things connected? What's the cause and effect? How does that work? Well, let me explain. It goes without saying, there are various types of way, types of wisdom that are out there, right? And what I mean by that is there are various types of way of trying to make sense of the world. There's the atheist way of trying to understand the world. There's the Buddhist way of trying to understand the world. There's a postmodern way of trying to understand. You get the point. But with all these variety forms of wisdom that is out there, all wisdom, no matter what kind of wisdom you're talking about, has the exact same goal. And you know what that goal is? What is the ultimate goal of wisdom? It's simply this, to find that one thing, that one truth that can bring together things that on the surface seem unrelated and unable to come together. The whole goal of wisdom is to unify things that seem so ununifiable, to bring together things that seem that can never be brought together. That is the goal of wisdom, to bring unity out of a chaotic diversity. Think about it for a moment. Let's think about that institution that we all go to to receive some wisdom. You know what I'm talking about? The university. University. You know that word university is actually made up of two words? You know what they are? Unity. Diversity, right? Bring them together, you got university. Why does an institution, which main job is to give wisdom to the people who go there, why do they identify themselves with that name? 
Because that is its mission. The mission of the university is to figure out that one thing that is in common with everything in the world that seems to have nothing in common at all. That is what the goal of wisdom is. Because there is this instinctual awareness that in the midst of all the chaos and all the randomness of life, there must be one thing that can bring it all together and make sense of it all. There must be one truth, one idea, that if we understood it, it can make sense and it could settle us and it can bring wonder into our lives. Now, if all this sounds too philosophical, which I think it is because some of you guys are like doing this right now, (laughs) let me see if I can concretize it for you with a story that I once heard. I once heard the story of a Native American warrior who lived up on the mountain, right, with his people, and they only lived on top of the mountain. They never ventured down the mountain. But this one warrior decided for the sake of his people to go off the mountain and explore what was at the bottom of it. And so this warrior bravely goes down the mountain, and what does he encounter? He encounters the Pacific Ocean. And for the first time in his life, three things that he thought were never compatible with each other, water, earth, and wind, manifest itself in a brilliance unity that he never thought possible, the ocean. And as he sees the water in the ocean, as he sees the earth in the sand, as he feels the wind through the sea breeze, He's overwhelmed because he has seen an integration, a unity that he never thought possible, and he's filled with wonder. What is the ocean doing? The ocean is imparting wisdom. And so he's so moved, he's so overwhelmed, he feels like, i got to show my people this wisdom. What does he do? He takes three clay jars. One jar he takes ocean water. Another jar he puts sand in. Another jar he just lifts up to get the breeze. He closes it. He takes three jars up the mountain, and he tells his people, People! I've just discovered something. And he opens it up. Water, earth, wind. People look at him like, what are you, an idiot? (laughs) So what? Right? They're not filled with wonder. Why? Because they had not experienced the wisdom of the ocean. Where the wisdom did not impart on them how these things in their minds, which have nothing in common, can come together to create a brilliant unity that could fill them with wonder. And so without any wisdom, there is no wonder. See, this is how you know when you've encountered real wisdom. Real wisdom will always, always, always lead a person to wonder, which means you need to be highly suspicious of people who claim to have wisdom, but when they teach you that wisdom, it doesn't leave you filled with wonder. For example, Christopher Hitchens, the former atheist, because he's now dead, right? The late Christopher Hitchens, Right? who everyone claims to be one of the wisest atheists who ever lived in the 20th century. He was on a book tour for his New York Times bestselling book, God is Not Great, and he was asked a question that all wise people claim to have an answer for. What's the purpose of life, Mr. Hitchens? And this was his response. What is the purpose of life? Mainly gloating over the misfortunes of people. I guess that has to be it. Crowing over the miseries of others. It never completely works, but it never completely fails. And then there is irony, which is the cream and the coffee. Sex can have diminishing returns, but it is amazing. That's pretty much it. And then it's a clear under the grave. Now, let me ask you. When you hear Mr. Hitchens' quote-unquote wise answer, does it leave you filled with wonder? (laughs) Do you feel awed by the wisdom that he just tried to communicate in these words? What's my point? The point is this. There are a lot of things out there that claim to be wise, but in fact, they're not wise at all because it does not pass the litmus test of genuine wisdom. 
Genuine wisdom should make you filled with wonder. It should leave you feeling awed, marveled, wonderful. And here is where we come to understand the uniqueness of the wonderful counselor because when Isaiah refers to Jesus as the wonderful counselor, right, what is he saying? He's saying it's only through the wisdom of Jesus, not the wisdom of Buddha, not the wisdom of atheism, only the wisdom of Jesus that can actually do what all wise people are trying to do. Because even though it's universally recognized that wisdom should lead to wonder, Isaiah is saying it's only the wisdom of Jesus that can actually do it. Only the wisdom of Jesus can make people filled with wonder. It's the only wisdom that can unite everything in such a way that it is wonderfully marvelous. Listen to how theologian Greg Johnson puts it. Quote, in a world that seems so fragmented and compartmentalized, where we suffer from information overload, we long for wholeness. If we look at the different spheres of our lives and see a dozen unrelated branches shooting off in different directions, it's helpful to step back and see where all the branches come from, to follow them down to the trunk from where each branch springs. Here we can follow the advice of the Dutch theologian and Prime Minister Abraham Kuyper, who in 1898 delivered these words to the faculty of Princeton. Such a life system must find its starting point in a special interpretation of our relation to God. If such an action is put its stamp upon our entire life, it must start from that point in our consciousness in which our life is still undivided and lies comprehended in its unity. Not in the spreading vines, but in the root from which all vines spring. Here alone we find the common source from which the different streams of our human life spring and separate themselves. So, this is where our worldview, our wisdom begins. Where our universe begins, where our lives begins, and where the Bible begins. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. Now, some of you are hearing this, and you're thinking to yourself, Pastor John, um, you sound ridiculous right now, right? This idea that wisdom, let alone the wisdom of Jesus, can bring all things together to where it would leave us in awe and wonder, especially when you consider some of the things that are going on in this life, like sex trafficking, like genocide, right? Children dying of starvation. How can Jesus take that and all that is good with the world and combine it in such a way to where we would be filled with marvel and awe? Doesn't the bad things in life already spoil the good things to where we wouldn't be awed? We would be disgusted. We would be frustrated. How can the wisdom of Jesus bring the good and the bad in such a way to where we would leave filled with awe? Great question. This leads me to my final point. The wisdom of the wonderful counselor. You know, with all this talk about the wisdom of Jesus in terms of why we need it and what it produces in us, wonder, I never actually define what the wisdom of Jesus actually is. So let me do that now by first letting you hear what the Apostle Paul says about what the wisdom of Jesus is. This is what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 18, we read, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand sign and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Notice what Paul says exactly what the wisdom of Jesus is. 
It's the message of the cross. It's the gospel. The wisdom of Jesus, the wisdom of God is the gospel. But notice also what he says about people who reject this gospel in terms of how they perceive it. How do people who don't believe in the gospel, how do they view the gospel? You know what he says? It's stupid. It's foolishness. Utter nonsense. Sadly, this idea is still being propagated by those who don't believe the gospel. Richard Dawkins, another well-known atheist who's still highly admired amongst atheists as their greatest sage, listen to what he said in one television interview. What about the God of the New Testament? Here we have a God who wanted to forgive mankind its sin. Why didn't he just forgive them? Why was it necessary to have a human sacrifice, to have his son tortured and executed in order to have the sins of mankind, uh, sins be absolved? Is that not the most disgusting idea you ever heard? You know, for Dawkins and those who share his wisdom, atheists, they hear about the gospel and they think this is stupid, utter nonsense. And yet you go back to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, and he pushes back, no, it's you who are the fool. It is you who are filled with nonsense. You know why Paul says that? Because Paul says the wisdom of Jesus is able to do what no other wisdom is able to do. The wisdom of Jesus is able to do what no other wisdom can do. And what is that, you ask? Well, think about it. What is the cross of Jesus? The cross of Jesus is God's response to a complicated world. The cross of Jesus is God's response to a complicated world. You're like, whoa, 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 pastor, that doesn't sound right. That sounds theologically off. Isn't it more correct to say that the cross of Jesus is God's response to a sinful world? Well, why do you think the world is complicated? Why is the world so complicated? Isn't it because of sin? Isn't sin the reason why the world is so complicated? I love this quote. It's a long one, but it's good. Cornelius Plantiga, listen to how he describes sin. The veins of sin interlace through most of the rest of what is wrong in our lives, through birth disorders, disease, accidents, and nuisances. Thousands of third world children die daily from largely preventable diseases out of laziness or complacency. Certain grown-ups fail to prevent them. Thousands of first world children are born drug addicts. Their mothers have them hooked in the womb. Some people with sexually transmitted disease knowingly put new partners at terrible risk. It happens every day. Many accidents are in retrospect both accidental and predictable. Somebody who needed to concentrate on his job in order to protect others, a pilot or a lifeguard or a ship's captain, got drunk instead or careless or wholly preoccupied. Often a number of such factors combine in some lethal and intricate way to bring havoc to human well-being. Oh, what about tornadoes, earthquakes, floods, forest attacks, shark attacks? Surely here we have causes of purely natural as opposed to moral evil, and surely here it is pointless to refer disparagingly to human agency, yes and no. The fact is that some acts of God need not become human disasters. These events might have been anticipated and then skirted so as to minimize or prevent suffering. People might have prepared for some of these events. Shoddy bridge construction, bribery of inspectors, greedy condominium development in known hurricane alleys or floodplains, ignorant disdain for the sudden power of mountain storms at 12,000 feet. These and other human failures sometimes cause or at least exacerbate the suffering produced in natural disasters. Sin usually plays at some role in the kind and amount of evil we absorb from what we are used to thinking as of non-moral events. Above all, sin disrupts and resists the vital human relation to God, and it does all this disrupting and resisting in a number of intertwined ways. Sinful life is a depressing and ludicrous caricature of genuine human life. What is he saying here? He's saying at base root, the root of what makes this world so miserably complicated, it's sin. 
sin, everything that makes your life miserable due to complication can find some way back to sin. And that is what the cross of Jesus attacks. The cross of Jesus attacks sin. And do you know how he attacks sin? How does Jesus on the cross attack sin? This is so important. So I want to make sure you really understand it. Let me quickly explain. Sin does not exist on its own. It cannot exist on its own. Sin is like a virus. It needs a host in order to do its thing. Okay? Which means it needs a sinner. In order for sin to exist, it needs a sinner. And the Bible tells us that the only way God destroys sin is by destroying the host, by destroying the sinner. You kill the host, you kill the virus, you kill the sin, right? Which leads to a world that is no longer complicated, that's no longer miserable. But there is a problem with that solution. If God killed the sinner, yeah, it may result in a world with no miserable complication, but it also leaves a world with no people, with no image bearers of God. And the whole point of why God created the world is so that he could have a relationship, a loving relationship with humanity, those who bared his image, for God to get rid of man so that he could have a world that's no longer, you know, miserably complicated, it's, it's as ludicrous as a mom getting rid of her newborn so she can have a nursery that's tidy and clean and in order. The whole point of why she has a nursery is so that she could have this beautiful, loving relationship with her child. The whole point of why God created the world is so that he could have a loving relationship with mankind. So here God seems to be at a conundrum. What does he do? How does he overcome this? I'll tell you what he does. He does something marvelous, something wonderful that Paul speaks of in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You know what Paul is saying? He's saying God made Jesus the substitute host, the substitute sinner for those who put their faith in him in Jesus Christ. For those who put their faith in him, excuse me, right? So that he could unify two things that on the surface seem impossible to bring together. God's need to destroy sinners. God's need to protect and love those who are made in his image. How can God bring together in unifying cohesion these two things that on the surface seem impossible to be brought together? How? The cross. That is what the cross does. When Jesus died on the cross, he brought together these two things that God needed to do, and he brought an integrated unity, where at the cross, he was able to destroy sinners, but he was also able to protect those made in his image. What is that a description of? That's a description of wisdom, right? Because remember, second point, what is defined as wisdom? What is the goal of wisdom? Wisdom is to try and bring a unifying thing Amongst things that seem that they cannot be brought together. Jesus at the cross displayed wisdom of God because he brought all that is wrong with the world, represented through sin, with all that is good in the world, represented with God's love for humanity. And he brought it together in such a cohesive, integrated way to where it all makes sense, to where it leads us to wonder and marvel. That's what Paul says in Colossians 1. Listen to what he says. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ, and through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace or unity with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. Christian, this is why the cross is the wisdom of God. This is why when you look at the cross, when you consider the gospel, you should always be marveling. You should always be filled with wonder. 
terrible is the day if you ever hear the gospel message, if you ever see the cross of Christ and you yawn with boredom. Every time you look at the cross, every time you hear the gospel message, it should be filled with such wonder and awe because here at the cross you see the beautiful display of how God can take things that seem so incompatible, something that had nothing in common and brings them all to a singular common point, the truth that brings everything together, the true wisdom of God. You see Jesus on the cross. You see the gospel. See, the cross should cause you to be inspired because of the wisdom of God it displays. But you know what? It should also inspire you for another reason because it tells you why Jesus did what he did. And what did he do? Well, you should know it. We sing about it all the time this time of year, right? The wonders of his love. The wonders of his love. The wonders of his love. You like the way I kind of did that? The wonders of the wisdom of God. How he can take all that is miserably complicated in the world and combine it with all that is good in him and marvelously, wonderfully display the wonders of his love through his son Jesus, through the greatest gift that he could ever give us. At this time, I'd like to invite you to just reflect for just a moment. You can bow your heads, close your eyes, if that will help facilitate that. And I really just want to ask you one question right now, and it's this. What wisdom are you looking to right now to cope with your complicated life? I don't think I'm making a stretch here to assume that our lives are complicated. Things at work are complicated. Things at home are complicated. Things inside of you are complicated. Things at church are complicated. And what wisdom are you looking to to help you in overcoming it? And you should think about that wisdom, whatever it is. Let me ask you. Is it filling you with wonder? As you look to the solution of trying to make sense of all the chaos and confusion and complications of life, does the wisdom that you're depending on now as the remedy for that, is it causing you to be filled with wonder and awe and marvel? This Christmas season, I'd like for you to think that contrary to what you may have thought before, your Jesus is much more relevant, much more necessary that you have given him credit for. Would you consider his wisdom? Would you consider his counsel? Because I promise that by doing so, life not only becomes less complicated, but it becomes filled with more wonder. And I think we could all agree we need more wonder in our lives. So I invite you now to go to the Lord and ask for his personal application of today's message in your life. Let's pray together.
Father, as we think about your word today, Father, I pray by your grace it was not over anyone's head, but instead it was dear to everyone's hearts. And it would stir their spirit to be moved to wonder and be at your feet in marveling joy and awe. As we think about what this time of year represents, as we remember the first coming of Christ, the advent of Christ. Lord, help us to come back to that story, especially in moments in our lives where we feel that life is so complicated and so difficult to process and to make sense of it all. Lord, we know that it is only through wisdom that we are able to have the countenance of our hearts lifted up, our face lifted up with joy. But more specifically, we also know it is only through the wisdom of Jesus that is able to do that. And so, Jesus, marvel us again. Help us to see the wonder of your love as expressed through the wisdom of the cross, the message of the cross, so that we may go out into the world that threatens and dares us to be fearless in the midst of all the chaos, that we indeed can be fearless because of our faith in the one who makes sense of all things, thereby giving us peace, thereby giving us hope. Oh God, would you lead us now as we seek to do that? For we need your wisdom desperately. Would you hear us and be with us? For we ask all these things in the mighty name of Jesus and all God's people together said, amen and amen.